Today, we're going to be discussing the true cost of the left's climate change lies and the importance of increasing, yes, increasing our use of fossil fuels. I brought on the one guy who knows it all, so we'll get right to it as we do. Alex Epstein. Stu does America. Apologies to Alex for the Stu Does Alex Epstein title today. BlazeTV.com slash Stu is the place to go to subscribe to Blaze TV. If you use the promo code Stu, you can get 10 bucks off. And you can go back and watch interviews we've done all the way back to 2000, I think, 14 with one Alex Epstein. His book back then was called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And we went through it in depth. And it's a really, really interesting book. And that's one of the things... I like to do that's maybe a little bit different than uh, some of the other hosts you watch in that like I I don't always do the interview with the book author in week one when it comes out. And I do that kind of intentionally, uh, partially, of course, I'm such a, um, you know, uh, such a big deal that uh, everyone's too busy for me on week one. But secondly, I actually like to read the book, especially a book like this, something I think is an important book, something that I think can change the way we think about a really important issue. I like to go through it completely before we bring on an author, because a lot of times, you know, and, and, and sometimes you're forced to do this as well when you do a stupid little show like this. Sometimes, you know, the book comes out and, you, you know, they're looking to promote it and you try to talk to them about it immediately. And that's fine, too. But I, with a book like this, I wanted to go through the entire thing. So I've taken a couple, uh, you know, it's been a couple of weeks since it came out. But I wanted to have Alex Epstein for an extended interview, because this book, I think, is vitally important. I really do. Uh, it's something that changes, I think, the way we look at our discussions as they are based around energy and honestly, more importantly, human flourishing uh, in total. We are berated by the media and the left and everybody and politicians all over the, the, the spectrum um, to believe that CO2 is evil, that global warming is catastrophic and awful and coming for us all. And not only looking at just all of these terrible downsides of, of our society and the way that we produce energy, but also never acknowledging the upsides, seemingly letting it slide that we've you know, created an entire civilization over the past couple hundred years, primarily on the, on the backbone of fossil fuels. But looking forward, is there too much? here is it you know are we using too much are we going to have a catastrophic consequences from all this we're going to get into this in depth with alex epstein his new book is called fossil future and he's going to join us next take your summer adventures to the next level with bespoke post and their new seasonal lineup of must-have box of awesome collections. Bespoke Post partners with small businesses and emerging brands to bring you the most unique goods every month from camping gear essentials to beach day and travel must-haves. Box of Awesome has everything you need for summer. Now, I'll pitch this to you in two ways. Number one, stuff for you, okay? If you're a guy, you like cool stuff, no matter what the category is, you can find something at boxofawesome.com. You take a quiz there and your answers will help them pick the right box of awesome for you. All tons, you know, tons of different categories, new boxes every month. I will also pitch it to you as a great gift, uh, no matter uh, what you're doing. If you've got, uh, you know, 
your dad, you know, if, you, if you've got uh, any guy in your life, really, uh, that you think might like cool stuff, which is pretty much everybody, get them Bespoke Post and uh, their box of awesome. Each box is valued at about $70, but you only pay a fraction of that price. And I've never seen one ever that's only about $70. They're always much more than that. It's a great value. And it's free to sign up, and you can skip a month or cancel any time. They make it really easy to customize. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code STU at checkout. Boxofawesome.com. The code is STU. Get 20% off your first box now. It's boxofawesome.com. Code STU. I'm joined now by Alex Epstein. He's the founder and CEO of the Center for Industrial Progress and author of the book Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. It's available now. Make sure to grab a copy wherever you get your books. Alex, how's it going? Uh, it's going great, Stu. You're, you're too gracious to say this, but I was late for this interview, so I'm, I'm going to give you the really good stuff I've decided. Oh, good, good. There's some secret stuff in the back of the book that I may have missed, so I'm very yes, excited exactly. for this. <laughs> uh, Alex, uh, thanks so much for writing this book. I know it's been, uh, you know, you've worked really hard on it. Uh, we had you on back, I think it was like 2014, on your last book. And this book is sort of like updated with tons more uh, to, to go through. I went through the entire thing, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Um, I kind of want to bring in the audience audience, though, uh, maybe with a sort of a defining of terms. There's a lot of uh, concepts that you talk about in the book that I think are really important to understand where you're going with this. So let's start with the sexy stuff, the glossary, um, and talk about uh, the difference between the anti-impact framework and the human flourishing framework. All right. Well, typically of you, you started out with really philosophical stuff, which I uh, which I appreciate. <laughs> so um, first, let's talk about what a framework is. So a framework is a starting structure. And in you know physical things like building buildings, you think of what's the starting structure of a building. But this also works really well for thinking of mental things like our thinking and our communication. Because whenever we're thinking and communicating, there are certain basic things that are the framework. And I, I categorize these in terms of values, uh, assumptions, and methods. So values in terms of what are we going after? What do we think is good to go after? Assumptions, what are the basic things that we believe that shape our expectations and crucially our predictions? And then methods, how do we go about evaluating specific things? And what I talk about is that the prevailing framework that is being used to evaluate fossil fuels makes no sense to anyone who is remotely pro-human. And I call this the anti-impact framework. And what I find what I find is when you make explicit the framework that our leaders so-called are using and that many of us inadvertently operate on, almost no one would accept it. So I'll just give you the alternatives, the anti-impact framework versus the human flourishing framework. So in terms of values, what the anti-impact framework says, and you can see this in all of our discussions right now about this mansion, what I would consider debacle, is it's saying our goal should be to eliminate CO2 as quickly as possible at all costs. This is the dominant goal in the world today when you think about energy. You know, The UN has it, corporations have it. They're all talking about net zero as quickly as possible without thinking about, well, what does this mean for human empowerment? What does this mean for human flourishing? And on the human flourishing framework, it says, no, eliminating CO2 cannot possibly be our primary goal. Our primary goal, if we're thinking about the world, needs to be to advance human flourishing on Earth. And CO2 policy is at most one aspect of that. But you need to 
to think about many other things, including, I argue, the benefits of fossil fuels. Mm. If you look at the assumptions of how we evaluate fossil fuels, what you find is that when we have all of these people who are predicting that if we continue to use fossil fuels, there's going to be this apocalypse. And if we get rid of fossil fuels quickly, life is gonna get better. And historically, I show in chapter two, there's a 40 or 50 year track record of these predictions being totally wrong. Namely that we're told that we're gonna run out of resources in a catastrophic way, our environment is gonna become catastrophically contaminated, and then we're gonna have you know mass death either due to global cooling or global warming. And what you find is these catastrophes don't materialize. And in fact, life gets better in large part because of the fossil fuels that are demonized. For example, they've reduced drought-related death or they've helped reduce drought-related death by a factor of 100 down by 99% uh, due to things like fossil fuel irrigation, fossil fuel drought relief vehicles, et cetera. And so all of this, why do our so-called experts get it wrong? They operate on what I call the delicate nurture assumption, mm -hmm. which is this view that the earth, if we don't impact it, is this wonderful balance that is stable sufficient and safe, and then our impact ruins it. So they always expect that the next impact is gonna ruin things. Whereas in the human flourishing framework, the proper assumption is what I call the wild potential uh, assumption or premise, which means that nature is actually dynamic, deficient, and dangerous, and human impact is necessary and often productive and often improves the earth. So if you have one framework versus another, you're gonna see using fossil fuels as inevitably catastrophic versus reducing industry and fossil fuels as at least potentially catastrophic. And the third thing that's the most straightforward is in terms of the method of looking at fossil fuels. The anti-impact framework and the way we're taught to look at it is we do this insane thing where we only look at negative side effects and exaggerate them and we ignore benefits. Now this would be insane to do for prescription drug. You'd, you'd carefully weigh the benefits and the side effects, but in the realm of fossil fuels, it's considered totally acceptable to ignore the huge benefits, even though fossil fuels provide things such as food by powering the machines that produce the food and by providing the fertilizer that we need to grow food. And so the proper method on the human flourishing framework is what I call full context evaluation. You look carefully at the benefits and the side effects. And so the interesting thing about these two frameworks is that once the anti-impact framework is exposed, almost nobody is willing to defend it and will believe uh. it, but it's operating as a cancer in our society because it's not exposed. And so what I do in the first three chapters of Fossil Future is I show the way we're thinking about fossil fuels makes no sense. We're clearly ignoring the benefits. That's That clearly has disastrous consequences. And it's ultimately because uh, we have this false assumption that the earth will be great if we don't impact it, so we don't need fossil fuels, and the earth will be terrible if we keep impacting it. And then also we have this value focus where we're focused on eliminating CO2 and more broadly other impacts on nature versus improving the planet for human flourishing. So I think 90% of the issue is these debating frameworks. And if you're on a human flourishing framework, it's obvious we need more fossil fuels. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. I, I wanna go through, because you, you, you got through a lot of, of this here, and I wanna focus on a couple things. So if, you, if you're if you kind of just hearing this stuff for the first time, it might seem, I think, shocking to people. People are, it's almost ingrained in our society, even through conservatism and liberalism throughout, no matter what your politics are, that we are a negative influence on the earth. We uh, do things that are terrible to the earth, and that's the anti-impact framework, where you're thinking about the, 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 the best case for humanity is to not impact the earth. 
where the opposite, where you're talking about human flourishing, is we do impact the earth. And we all obviously know that. If you're ever inside air conditioning, you know that an impact on the earth can be very, very positive. But people just don't think of it that way. They don't think of impacting the earth as it could possibly be positive. You also bring up the delicate nurture assumption, which I thought was a really fascinating way to think about it. And I was, as I was thinking about it, I realized it's just everywhere. I mean, this is the pave paradise to put up a parking lot sort of idea that everything used to be perfect and now things are terrible because we have concrete and pavement and fossil fuels. And it's like, you know, you, you go through this in, in a lot of detail in the book. The earth for human beings kind of used to suck and our impact has been a positive for humans and that's how we should look at it. Yeah, 100%. And an aspect of this delicate nurture assumption that I didn't say explicitly is what I call the uh, p- parasite polluter assumption. And so this is the idea that our impact is either we're, we're being a parasite, so we're just taking resources from a, a generous earth, but we're being too greedy, or we're just polluters, meaning that we, you know, we just make it dirtier. In the case of climate, they think of it as we're making it uh, unstable. And this is just such an inaccurate view of us. The earth is not a, a hospitable place naturally at all. Now, it's an amazing place, don't get me wrong. It has all the raw material we need to have amazing lives, but that raw material was useless for all of human and pre-human history until very recently because nature doesn't give us that much in terms of usable resources and it gives us a lot in terms of threats. And so the only way we can get around that is through being productive. We need to produce new resources, including ways to neutralize and overwhelm threats. But our physical bodies are so limited that we cannot do that unless we use machines to radically amplify and expand our productive ability. Amplify means doing the same work we can do manually, but doing far more, like a modern combine harvester that can reap and thresh 1,000 times more wheat than a really good manual laborer can. So one person can do the work of a thousand. Or I talk a lot about incubators. That's a way we expand our productive abilities. We can provide the value of a hospitable environment to a very vulnerable baby, uh, which we just can't do with our physical bodies. So, so much of what makes the world amazing is the ability to use machines to do work for us. And that requires energy. And for that to be accessible to everyone and useful to everyone, it needs to be cost effective, namely low cost, reliable, versatile, meaning powering every type of machine, and then globally scalable. It needs to be available to billions of people in thousands of places. And that is the unique achievement of the fossil fuel industry. No other industries come remotely close to having globally cost-effective energy. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you point out sort of this positive feedback loop that results from this and that you know, you have uh, machines that do basic labor for people, which allows them not only to have leisure time, but also time to be employed and have careers in jobs that are intellectual, that think they're thinking about the next step on how to improve humanity even more. And this continues uh, a cycle of positive gains, uh, you know, throughout our history. And it's something that it's almost impossible to ignore when you actually stop and think about it. But I think one of the problems is people don't think about it. And you spend a good amount of time in the book, uh, something that I think really does affect fossil fuels, but also is much more wide ranging than this, which is the the anti-impact knowledge system and designated experts. And this, I thought, was just a fascinating way of explaining how you're, it's not necessarily, you know, by any means, you don't go through in this book and criticize scientists. 
mean, certain scientists you have problems with, but generally speaking, like you're saying like the, the research is there in a lot of places, but we have a filtering system that is letting us down. Can you explain this relationship? Yeah, definitely. This is this is, I think, one of the most valuable parts of fossil future. And it's something that I definitely didn't understand in the past, but I've, I've thought about it for about 20 years or even more than that, because I've always wondered, how do you how do we make use of the huge value of experts, which we obviously need in every area of life in different ways, without succumbing to the all too common problem of doing really wrong things, because we're told the experts think we should. And, and studying history and intellectual history, this is a particularly urgent problem because you see supporters of slavery being considered. You, you can, you know, there, that's often, oh, this is the expert view. Or eugenics, this is the expert mm. view. I mean, a lot of, you know, the Nazis had quite a bit of quote unquote expert support, racism more broadly, has a huge amount of expert support throughout history. And so there's this question of, yeah, how do we avoid this, but still get the benefit of experts. And I think one of the key insights is that most of the time when what we're told the experts think ends up being really wrong, it's not because it is or follows from what the researchers in the field say, but because it's some huge distortion of that by the institutions we're trusting to access the research. And so I have this four part thing I call the knowledge system, which captures what goes on. You have the researchers who do the basic research that's specialized and wide ranging, but then you have what I call synthesizers, people in every field who are, who are trying to synthesize the vast amount of knowledge in a field. And what I point out is that synthesis is very hard and if it goes wrong, even if all the research is as good as possible, the synthesis can be horrible. And we have a real life example of this, which is called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the UN. And I point out that when it synthesizes climate related research, it totally ignores the fact that through what I call fossil fuel climate, fossil fueled climate mastery, we've decreased the rate of climate related disaster death by a factor of 98% over a hundred years. And we're never told this, not only we're not told this, but the UN reports don't even mention this. I mean, can you imagine a polio report that didn't mention we're safer than ever from polio because of a polio vaccine? And really fossil fuels are like a climate vaccine. They make us so safe from climate relative to what they used to be. So this synthesis, that on its own can go wrong. And then I point out there's also dissemination institutions. So people who take these specialized syntheses people like the New York Times, and they're t they're giving it to us. And those people distort things like crazy. And then the final stage is evaluators. So people who are taking the alleged scientific knowledge in some field and then saying, this is what we should do about it. And here you can just totally go wrong, even if everything else went right. And what I argue is this is clearly going on because we're only looking at negative side effects of fossil fuels, particularly on climate, and not benefit. So even if the knowledge system functioned perfectly uh, in the other respects in climate, which it definitely isn't, just the fact that our evaluators are ignoring the benefits of fossil fuels can make them 180 degrees wrong in their prescriptions because it's very possible the benefits outweigh those negative side effects. And that's what I spend the whole book arguing is, is kind of obviously true. Yeah, it really is. A, it's a powerful argument. Um, and I'm looking at my prep already and there's no way I'm going to get through all the stuff that I prep. So I want to take <laughs> okay, a quick I'm gonna break. Answer, I'm going to answer it in tweet length statements. <laughs> yeah, only oh yeah, a couple hundred characters or less, Alex. Uh, no, actually, okay. we'll be back in a minute. You're doing, you're doing great. We're really getting through a lot of this stuff. It's really interesting. The book is called Fossil Future. We're going to take a quick break, come back on the other side with more with Alec, uh, Alex Epstein. 
Alex Epstein, author of Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal and Natural Gas, Not Less. Uh, One of the things you point out in the book, Alex, is it's not just about electricity. We are always talking about electricity, but you spend a lot of time talking about the secret sauce of fossil fuels. Uh, They are unique in their ability to solve these problems. Why? So I think you know, I divide energy into four categories, and I think the, the, there are different ways you can divide it, but I think this is a pretty good way to do it. I mean, it's the best I've thought of. That's why, that's why I do it. Uh, so you can think of electricity, uh, liquid fuel for transportation, industrial process heat, and residential heat. And as you indicated, we're taught to think of energy in terms of electricity. And I think a big reason for this is there's this push for so-called renewable solar and wind, and those directly generate electricity and have a lot of difficulty with many of the other applications, particularly uh, you know, liquid fuel for transportation, particularly heavy duty transportation, and then also industrial process heat, which is very large amounts of heat. And the thing is that it's the, the best way we've found to move large vehicles large distances, and often small vehicles as well, but definitely large vehicles large distances, is to use this very, very stable, liquid, very dense fuel, uh, which is liquid hydrocarbon fuel, but we call it oil fuel. right? So that's, that's just this amazing thing that we don't have any way to approximate with batteries and that's just that's just an issue that's very hard to overcome also the store not only is oil denser than batteries but oil in effect provides the storage free nature compressed uh you know the energy over time we basically what we do is we take oil and we you know we find it we refine it and we release the energy but natural processes concentrated and stored the energy for us whereas for a battery we have to make our own new storage system which can be very very expensive especially at scale and it's a similar thing for industrial process heat here you can do just about everything with electricity or i think everything with electricity but often it's cost prohibitive because the fastest the, the best way to generate a lot of heat is very often using just fossil fuels and burning them directly. And if you look at electricity, often fossil fuels are the cheapest way of producing electricity. Uh, But think about how inefficient it is to use fossil fuels to generate electricity where you have what are called conversion losses because you have to generate, you have to burn the thing to turn a turbine to generate electricity and then generate heat from that versus burning the thing directly. Burning Mm. the thing directly is often the most efficient way to do this. And we have a whole world that involves industry that burns fossil fuels directly because it's the most efficient thing. And that enables us to have the standard of living that we do. So when people say, oh, let's just use electricity, let alone let's just use unreliable solar and wind somehow, they're being very irresponsible. They're not thinking about all these direct uses of fossil fuels for heat, nor are they thinking about the use of liquid fuel for transportation. Can you just spend a second, too, on the industrial process heat? Because that's one that I don't think anybody thinks about. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, you burn fossil fuels, so they're good at a lot of types of heat. So there's residential heat, which is something like using natural gas to heat your home, which is just unmatched in terms of its efficiency. It's amazing. But then there's also things like steel making, like making, you know, making plastics. Now, plastics are made of oil and gas, but they're also usually made using oil and gas. And so it's anything where you have a lot of heat that you need 
to make things. So much of our world is based on generating really, really hot temperatures for things. You know, sometimes it's heating water, sometimes it's heating metal, can be heating different, you know, different other different liquids. Uh, but just we don't think about this because we're not and more broadly, we're not taught to appreciate how amazing our world is and all of the different forms of productive impacts we have to have on the world, including making things really hot uh, for the earth to be a livable place for humans. Mm. Um, okay, so there's there's all sorts of claims, though, that what you're saying isn't true. Like these, There are companies out there that are saying they're 100% green. You talk about Apple in the book as a specific example, but can you talk about how these claims of we are 100% uh, green and, and, and emission-free are not true at all? I mean, one indication that they're not true is the current process we're going through, which I think is going to be a disaster for this country, which is this, you know, Manchin-Schumer thing that they call the Inflation Reduction Act, and I call the Manchin Green New Deal, because it has all the essentials of the Green New Deal in terms of mandating, to, or at least trying to get us to use a lot more solar and wind, and then restricting fossil fuels. And the question is, if Apple and Google and all these companies are really 100% renewable and they're so profitable, why isn't everyone doing this? Why isn't th why is this not winning out? out on a free market? Why do they need these incredible policies and, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies? And the truth is that there's no company uh, at all that is 100% or remotely 100% solar and wind. The closest thing that we have in the world is Iceland is you can call it close to 100% renewable in terms of its electricity, not its energy overall, because they need oil for transportation. They happen to have good hydro resources and they have good geothermal resources, which as I talk about in chapter six, are very special to Iceland and their topography. So it's not, it's not something that you can do with existing technology around the world. But in any case, solar and wind is not powering you know, any place in terms of really doing that. So what these companies are doing is they are not, what they're not doing is they're not setting up solar panels and wind farms and saying, we're gonna power our operations just using those without the grid. What they do is go on the grid, which is about one eighth solar and wind around say the US. And what they do is they literally pay utilities to give them credit for other people's solar and wind and give other people the blame for their coal natural gas and nuclear use. So it's just a total scam. But the reality is that solar and wind are unreliable. They cannot power the grid with existing technology because batteries are way, way, way too expensive to make that remotely possible in terms of storing the electricity. And so we have a fossil fueled world. Fossil fuels provide most of our electricity. Otherwise you have nuclear and hydro, which the green movement also has huge hostility to. And so instead of people recognizing this, unfortunately our large tech companies or many of them are trying to virtue signal at the expense of brainwashing the public into thinking that 100% renewable is possible and good when in fact it's 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 impossible and if you try it it's massively destructive. Hmm. Uh, one of the things you talk about in the book is going through. Um, you're not saying that there could not never be any negative side effects from using fossil fuels. There theoretically could be some. They are maybe not even negative, but just something that changes. And you talk a lot about the concept of climate mastery. You mentioned it a little bit earlier. Can you can I, can I give a little bit more perspective on that? Because we look at this as something when we change the Earth from what it used to be, we've changed it, harmed it to uh, this new state, and what we need to do is fight to get it back to the old state. Climate mastery right. is a totally different way of thinking about this. Yeah, and I like the way you put it, although I'd put it even more aggressively, because it's not really about getting it to the old state, it's about getting it to the state it would be in had human beings never existed. Mm. 
because people recognize, hey, the earth changes, different things change over time. They're like, that's great. But if we change it, that's bad. And I'm just highlighting this because there's, I call this human racism, right? It's the view that anything the human race does is bad and anything the rest of nature does is good. So that's because people think of it as, oh, I love nature so much, but it's not about that. It's about singling out one part of nature and we are part of nature and saying this part's impacts are bad. And it happens to be us. I mean, it'd be one thing to just have a weird hatred of lions or something like that. <laughs> that would be bizarre, but you hate your own species. That's much more destructive and and much more, uh, I think, ultimately immoral. So uh, I got slightly distracted by. I thought there's an important point, but then you, what was the what was the rest of the question? Uh, talking a little bit about climate mastery. Oh, mastery. Yeah, of course. So when we're thinking about our, you know, effects on climate, and you're talking about fossil fuels in particular, if you just think about it in a common sense way, you think about okay, well, what do what does burning this, particularly putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, what does this do to the global climate system? And that's a legitimate thing to investigate. But you also have to look at what is all of this energy that's generated along with the CO2? What does this do to the livability of climate? And if you think of it in terms of common sense, it's pretty obvious that, well, wow, it helps us keep cool when it's hot, which is pretty important, particularly in Texas. Uh, it helps us, you know, it helps us be warm when it's cold, which is even more important. People don't know that there are far more cold-related deaths in the world today than heat-related deaths. You know, it helps us alleviate drought through irrigation, it helps us build sturdy buildings that make us much more protected from storms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, when we think of climate, we ignore what I call these climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels. That's one. And then when we look at the effects on climate, there's this assumption that they're only negative and that they must be catastrophic. And that is not a scientific assumption. I would regard it's a primitive anti-human religious assumption, which is this belief that all of our impact is bad, so it must lead to kind of hellish consequences in practice, versus saying, hey, when we put more CO2 in the atmosphere, that's gonna lead to more greening, which is generally a good thing, and it's gonna lead to more warming, and the science tends to say that the warming is gonna be more in the colder parts of the world, and if far more people die from cold than of heat today, then probably more lives are going to be saved by warming directly. And then there can be other consequences in terms of storms and floods and this kind of thing. And particularly sea level rises, you would expect to increase because you're having a warmer world, which expands water. Uh, but it's not looked at in this level-headed way at all. It's looked at, oh, it must be the apocalypse. And we assume all of our impacts on climate must be bad, which how could that possibly be true unless you had this anti-humanism? How could our impacts on the system adding more CO2, how could everything be worse? Particularly recognize that, well, we used to have 15 times more CO2 on this planet. You know, as a more tropical world. We could have lived in that world had we needed to. Uh, in some ways, it's more hospitable when it's more tropical. But we're nowhere near what the world used to be in terms of CO2. So you start to see it's just this huge anti-human bias. It's the opposite of the scientific perspective it's purported to be. Mm. And I will say, obviously, it's completely irrational to vilify one one piece of, uh, of nature, except for snakes, which is totally rational, <laughs> and you should do it, and I, I stand on that. Um, can you talk a little okay. bit about ESG scores? Because you go through some of the problems that could stop the, the right answer here, using more fossil fuels from coming to pass. ESG scores is a real threat, and it doesn't come the normal way through government policy. Sure, and let me, let me just qualify one thing. So the one thing you would think about, so 
I just want to give a CO2 levels in case somebody tries to get me on this. So we're sure. at about 0.04% of the atmosphere today, mm-hmm. and it's been 15 times higher throughout history. And as I argue in chapter nine, we have no plausible way of even getting one fourth to its historical high. So when I'm talking about like that's a totally livable planet, it absolutely would be to get even to this very, very high mark that we're nowhere near and have not going to be in the foreseeable future. Uh, the only thing with CO2 that you might be really concerned about if, if it kept going up forever, which it won't because we'll have nuclear and superior alternatives and other things like that. Uh, but at what you really look at, oh, if it, if it got as high as it used to be like 6,000 parts per million, is that hard for humans to breathe at or does that compromise our breathing? And there's you know conflicting reports on that. But the point is the levels of CO2 that are remotely possible in any future are not going to make the planet unlivable. They'll make it more tropical. And you can say, okay, well, there are cons to that. I'm worried about sea level rise. But you can't say it's going to make it this hellscape and that it's all bad. That's anti-human bias. And of course, you can't ignore the mastery. Okay, ESG scores. Yeah. So ESG has fortunately come under attack recently. You know, people like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk have attacked it. And I have a lot to say about ESG in general. But the the basic idea of it is that that these people who promote ESG standards, which really originate a lot from the UN, have somehow identified the ideal environmental, social, and governance practices that everyone should follow, which I would be skeptical of anyone saying this, but the UN claiming to have identified universal business practices when the UN is just mostly a collection of total failures of countries that know nothing about business. How could this, and and certainly none of those people run businesses successfully or almost none of them. So it's just this absurd premise in the first place that they have these universal norms. But then if you look at what they have in terms of environment, it basically means get off fossil fuels and also be hostile to nuclear. So their view of environment is, we shouldn't impact environment in general. It's evil to impact the climate. And so we should just stop doing it as soon as possible. And all these companies should make these commitments to do it. And that's very, very dangerous because when they make these commitments and often they tell lies about meeting these commitments, as I've mentioned with Apple and others, it it not all, it, it, the main thing is it just pollutes the global discussion. It makes people think that this is possible. And so it encourages these destructive anti-fossil fuel policies. And also the companies then have to lobby for anti-fossil fuel policies. So you guys are a victim of this in Texas. We have all these outside companies, all these companies from other states lobbying you to stay hooked on solar and wind, even though the Texas freeze of 2021 should have illustrated that, wait a second, it's not good to rely on sources of energy that don't work when it's really cold. Yeah, it seems like the time you really need the energy. And believe me, when my entire first floor flooded this past year, I I did very much take that into account. Um, Let me uh, there's so much to go through with you in this book. It's so it's so good. It's so detailed. Um, We you know, there's you go through the the climate alarm. It's very long. It is very very long, but incredibly worth it. This is the type of book you will go back to a hundred times when you're talking to people online and talking, uh, you know, uh, to people. Hopefully you're trying to convince to understand that this is a really important part of our future. Um, Let me let me uh, end with this. I, I was I'm very won over, as, as you know, we talked for years about this on the human flourishing um, sort of uh, framework. And in, in some ways, I feel like the book in some ways is limited by talking about fossil fuels. I, I feel like there's a broader conversation based on that fr- framework, which we should see a lot more of the world this way. I, you know, uh, when it comes to medicine, when it comes to technology, these things were constantly worried about this negative impact we may or may not be having, having, and not worried about the positives that could come around the corner. Can you broaden this just a little bit for us before you go and, and talk about that in, in a sort of, maybe outside of the fossil fuels realm? 
I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think it has a lot of implications. I mean, I, I've I've done some work applying it to other fields. I like talking to people in other fields who are doing work and and trying to help them in different ways. What I found myself is that kind of the most useful thing is to is just to keep furthering the state of the art with this issue of energy, hmm. and then I learn more and more about how to think about it, and then that helps think about other things because I don't really have the time to become this much of an expert in anything else, <laughs> uh, at least for a while. And there's still a lot more. To, I still have a lot more to learn about energy and particularly how to explain these issues. And I'm really interested these days in energy policy. What are the specific policies that we that I can give to, you know, Congress people and senators to actually make things better? That's kind of my current obsession is what I call an energy freedom platform, which people want to follow along. Go to energytalkingpoints.com and subscribe uh, to the list. Uh, but, yeah, absolutely. If, if people listen to these frameworks, particularly every industrial realm, the human flourishing framework versus anti-impact framework applies because it's just you think about plastics you think about agriculture you think about you know chemicals which are very connected to plastics you think about mining all the same dynamics apply where our impact is viewed as intrinsically immoral and inevitably self-destructive and so i think what i've done in with energy can be very directly applied to those. And sometimes I give speeches at those companies mm. and you know, talk to them about this kind of thing. But then it can also be, I think it can be applied to anything technological uh, as well in terms of when you're thinking about these technologies, there's a hostility toward new technology. And it tends to have this form of lo looking at and overemphasizing negative side effects versus ignoring benefits. So I think a lot of yeah. what I've done applies to technology. And there are other fields as well, uh, but there's some complexity there. And, and I would just say that one other variable I talk about in chapter 10 that's important, I think, to listeners of this show and viewers is freedom. Like a key element of fostering human flourishing is freedom. And that's why in chapter 10, I have a whole chapter about f freedom and energy and why that's important. And I think people who think about human flourishing but don't think, don't recognize that freedom is a requirement of human flourishing. Are even though they're not anti-human, they're thinking about how to benefit human life in a way that ultimately ends up being anti-human. You could even put the communists in this category. They claim to right. care about human flourishing, but they don't value human freedom. And look at where that gets us. <laughs> gets you to very bad high numbers of people who are dead, unfortunately. And uh, and that's you know, look, we get rid of fossil fuels, the same type of thing is going to happen. Um, and I'll pitch this to the generalists in the audience uh, that maybe aren't just an expert uh, like Alex. You know, talking about his concept on the knowledge system and hum the human flourishing framework and arguing to 100. They're all in the book, and they will help you, I think, in a bunch of different areas as well, not just energy. Though energy, when it comes to human beings and their flourishing, is so vital, and in this case is made incredibly well in the book. Alex Epstein, he is the founder and CEO of the Center for Industrial Progress. The newest book is Fossil Future. Don't miss it. Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. Grab a copy of it today. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's a great book, and, and it's just an incredible amount of work I know you put into it, and I, we do appreciate it. Thanks as always, and thanks for reading it so carefully. You know, buying or selling a home is already one of the most stressful things you can do, and what if it's powered? 
by solar power. You're going to have no electricity at all. I don't know if that's true. But look, you know, this is a big investment. That's one of the things you think about. What, what, you know, what, kind of, uh, what, kind of, what kind of electricity, what kind of heating, uh, all that stuff needs to be part of the equation when you're looking for a new home. And if you're selling your home, you need to make sure you're getting the best price possible. You need to make sure that you're not even just the best price. Like I, a while ago, this is years ago now, we were selling a piece of property and we had two offers come in. One was a little higher than the other. We want to take in the one that was a little bit less because, the, you know, when, we, when the agent really dug into that first higher offer, it looked flaky. And wound, they wound up flaking on the offer a little bit later. We wound up taking the, the slightly lower offer, which was still great. Look, realestateagentsitrust.com is a place to go to find the best agent in your area. Check it out now, realestateagentsitrust.com. We all know there's this thing that politicians do, which is like they have a bill where they spend a bunch of money and name bridges after themselves or whatever. And then they name it something that they think you're going to like. The Hugging Puppies Act of 2022, you know, that type of thing. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act shockingly does not actually reduce inflation or taxes or anything. It seems to be it reduces, um, you know. I guess your pocketbook. That's about it. Um, 230 economists are now warning that Joe Manchin's spending bill will perpetuate inflation. These experts are saying uh, uh, that not only is it uh, not going to help inflation, but it's also like, you know, we know they bend these rules all the time, but you can actually get in trouble for naming something that's something that's totally opposite of what it actually does. You know, that's not supposed to happen. So we'll see if there's any impact of that. It does seem like Kirsten Cinema. We talked about this with uh, Ed Morrissey yesterday in detail. It's, is Kirsten Cinema going to cross this line? And every time I have this moment of like hope, I guess it would be in one of these people, Cinema, uh, Mansion, any of them. They always fail. They always collapse. They always cave to the party. This happens every single time. If you've been watching this show since the beginning, you know 2020 we started. We got like three good, maybe two weeks of just solid fun content. And then the pandemic hit. And then we went into the election. And then we went into the January 5th where uh, the Georgia election occurred. And uh, all of a sudden, it looks like the Democrats are going to have control. And then, of course, January 6th and then everything else has happened since. But like I said, since January 5th, Joe Manchin will not save you. He will not come through in the clutch. When you need him to be that one tough voice that holds the line, he will say he's going to do it over and over and over and over again. And then at the end, he will cave every single time. And despite saying that for like two years, I got to the point a few weeks ago, I was like, Jesus, he actually going to is he going to hold the line this one time? Is this really going to happen? He said it's over, blah, blah, blah. Two weeks later, he folds. And then just yesterday, I was talking to Ed Morrissey. And I was like, you know, is there a possibility that Kirsten Cinema actually does hold the line and actually has some principles on this? I mean, is that possible? As soon as I say that, she flips. So I'm the one screwing this up for you. These are my hundreds of billions of dollars. The second I get any optimism, everything falls into the crapper. So that's, uh, that's me taking responsibility for what I've done. But other people need to take responsibility for what they've done as well. New York may face the tip of the iceberg with polio, says their health chief. Uh, with increased urgency, state officials called for residents to get vaccinated against polio after it was found in a second county's wastewater. This is starting to be a big story in New York. And it's like, you know, what are you going to do? Blame Andrew Cuomo for this? Uh, you know, yes. Why? 
I don't know. But what I do know is Andrew Cuomo is awful. Dot com. We did these uh, Let's Go Brandon socks, I think it was last Christmas, and they were huge sellers. And now there is a brand new line of socks out at blazesocks.com. I mean, even Glenn Beck is on one of the socks. How can you miss uh, out on that? Uh, now, if you want to get a deal, uh, if you're a Blaze TV member, you can go to, uh, to blazesocks.com. Use the promo code STUSOCKS. You'll get 20% off your purchase. If you're not a Blaze TV subscriber yet, you can go to blazetv.com. Use the promo code BLAZESUB and get 20% off of that, too. So why not hook yourself up with 20% off? both blazesocks.com check out the socks pick your favorites blazesocks.com the promo code is stew socks for 20 percent off blazesocks.com promo code stew socks or you can get all the merch you want as well stew does merch.com we will see you tomorrow or monday